0: Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast, where we discuss a range of issues in the fast-moving field of biomedical informatics. I am Marilyn Ritchie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore, and we are coming to you from Penn Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find us at bmipodcast.org. great to be back to host episode one of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. Just so listeners know, we are actually sitting at a roundtable in the Idea Factory of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Sitting next to me is co-host Jason Moore. Jason, what have you been up to since our last recording?
1: Well, it's great to see you, Marilyn, and it's great to be back for a second episode of the podcast. I thought the first one went really well. Um, It has been symposium season here at Penn Medicine. I have participated in so many different symposia. Um, It has been a busy fall. Um, uh, We had a big data and population health symposium that went really well. Um, I also gave a talk and and, uh, helped contribute to the um, Mid-Atlantic Bioinformatics Conference that was uh, organized by the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and that went really well. We had a great day with some outstanding external speakers. We also had our Institute for Translational Medicine and Advanced Therapeutics Symposium. It was a two-day symposium with a lot of great speakers from outside Penn, uh, I also gave a talk on our Penn AI software at a Wharton Business School Executive Education Program, and we had a big group from China here. That was a lot of fun. Our uh, Penn Innovation Center had a symposium. Uh, we also had the third annual Penn Center for Precision Medicine symposium. Um, and uh, the other thing I'll mention is I've, I've actually been home for a stretch. Um, like you, Marilyn, I travel a lot. And um, have actually been home for two months, had a short trip to Case Western Reserve University to give a talk, and I'm home for another two months. So I, uh, I don't think this has happened probably since my first year as an assistant professor 20 years ago. So I've been really, really enjoying being around for some time. How about you? What have you been up to? Well,
0: it sounds like my life has been the exact opposite of yours (laughs) for the last couple of months. So I have been in heavy travel season myself. Um, I've been giving a lot of talks, both at different meetings uh, abroad as well as locally. So I gave a talk at the systems genetics meeting at the EMBL in Heidelberg. Um, It was on machine learning and EHRs, some of the same stuff that we talked about in the first episode of the podcast, episode zero. Um, This meeting was in Heidelberg, Germany, which is a town that I love. I've been there a few times before, but never had the chance to be at the EMBL before, so that was a lot of fun. Really great meeting, although it took several days to recuperate from the jet lag uh, after the trip. I also gave a talk at the American Society for Human Genetics meeting. That was on EHR research and genomics. Again, it was a great meeting. That one is a long one. It's almost the full week long, and so it was a lot of time away and just a lot of work to get done um, at the meeting itself. I have, as I mentioned, given some local talks. So I talked about EHR research at the Million Veterans Program meeting over at the VA. I gave a talk at the Big Data in Population Health, meeting that you mentioned as well as the IPMAT Symposium. I also gave a talk at the um, International Society for Pharmacoepidemiology, which was in downtown Philadelphia. And looking back at my calendar, I traveled four out of five weeks in the month of October. So I was barely home. (laughs) Um, Luckily, November is not quite like that, Um, which is fortunate because the other thing that we're up to right now in the lab is working on submitting manuscripts. So in the lab, I have a no-fly zone time period between Thanksgiving and New Year's where I really discourage people in the lab from submitting papers. I feel like both reviewers and editors are not in the mood to review papers, and so they approach them with kind of a cranky attitude in that time frame. You know, whichever holiday you celebrate, they all seem to fall between Thanksgiving and January 1, and between... The cooking and the cleaning and the gifts and the cards and the decorating and getting all of the things on your to-do list done by the end of the calendar year, which for some reason we all like to have all these things done at the end of the year, even though you come back on January 2nd and it's just another work week. So I don't know why we do that to ourselves, but we do. And so the last thing you want to do is review papers. And so I feel like reviewers are just cranky and so I try not to submit. And so everyone in the lab knows that and they are rushing to get them done over the next couple of weeks so that we hit them and get them submitted before the no-fly zone.
1: I agree. It's a terrible time to submit papers and we generally don't submit papers or hold them off until January. But also let me tell you that being home for weeks on end has been absolutely wonderful.
0: Well, I am looking forward to it. I am Suba Madhavan, Chief Data Scientist
1: at the Georgetown University Medical Center, and you're listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In addition to recording and publishing these first two podcasts, we have been busy setting up web pages, social media accounts, email addresses, etc., to provide avenues for advertising the podcast and for generating discussion and receiving feedback from our listeners. So I just have a couple uh, of our new developments to mention. Um, first, we have a webpage, bmipodcast.org. And you can leave us feedback at feedback at bmipodcast.org. Our uh, podcast is hosted by SoundCloud. We are also uh, on Facebook and have a Facebook page. You can search for the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast and find us there. We're on Twitter at BMIRpodcast. We're on Stitcher, we're on Apple, and we're on Spotify. So uh, hopefully we've covered uh, enough of the bases that you can find us and uh, enjoy the podcast um, easily.
0: Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is Interpretation of Machine Learning Results. Jason will introduce this topic.
1: We uh, picked this topic because of the popularity and widespread use of machine learning in the biomedical sciences. One of the most important challenges in machine learning is understanding what the machine learning model is saying and how the results can be used to design experiments or improve healthcare. So what I've done is I've made a list of what I think are some of the important uh, areas uh, and methodologies that you can use to interpret a machine learning model. So I'm just going to go through these and list them. This is by no means an exhaustive list. Um, And if we leave something off that you think is important, be sure and let us know. We'd love to hear some feedback from you because this is really a hot, hot area in biomedical informatics. So I grouped these into a couple different buckets. The first is statistical interpretation. And this is something I put a lot of emphasis on and really understanding the relationships between the features in a machine learning model. Uh, The first thing you can do, which is pretty common, is uh, what are called feature importance scores. So this is a weighting that's given to each variable or feature in the model as to how big of a contribution it makes to the overall accuracy or predictive ability of the model. Some people call this a sensitivity analysis. You can do that by removing the variable one at a time, the feature, and seeing how the machine learning uh, uh, quality metric changes. What we typically do is uh, a permutation test. So we randomize each feature leaving it in the dataset randomize and repeat the analysis and look at the change in the quality metric. The other thing we do is look at the correlation structure. So one of the things I love to do is a hierarchical cluster analysis on the features in the machine learning model and to look at their relationships as a way to interpret. So you can compare that then to the feature importance scores because some of the features uh, might be correlated with each other and understanding those relationships is important. The other thing I do is an interaction analysis uh, using interaction infor- information, which is a, uh, an entropy-based measure or a measure of synergy to look at the synergistic relationships between the features. And that's one of the common types of patterns that's picked up by machine learning that's missed by common parametric statistical approaches is nonlinear, non-additive interaction. So understanding the interactions between the features can be important. Um, I also like to output the individual components of a machine learning model. So for example, if you're doing a neural network or decision tree, you can output the nodes in the middle of the, of the model and then look at the, treat those as features and look at the relationships between the nodes as a way to understand what the machine learning model is doing or you can do the correlation analysis I mentioned. I also like to compare with linear or logistic regression results as a way to understand what, what the machine learning model is contributing above and beyond standard parametric statistical approaches There's also an approach that's become popular called LIME, which stands for Local Interpretable Model Agnostic Explanations. The goal here is to figure out why the model is making certain predictions. Here you fit a simple regression or decision tree model to a subset of the data to learn about why those particular predictions are made. The simple models only need to explain the subset and do not need to generalize to the whole data set. And I've got a link in the show notes on the web page bmipodcast.org, where you can uh, find the paper that describes the LIME method. I haven't used LIME, um, but um, uh, it is popular and something I'd love to try. And then finally, um, I think it can be informative to do an analysis of the instances or the rows in your data that are not classified correctly. Why are certain subjects in your data set not classified? Uh, why Why are those errors or those problems for the machine learning model And comparing that subset of, of individuals to the subsets that were uh, predicted correctly.
0: Yeah, those are all really great suggestions, and I especially like that last one. That's something we do a lot of. The one other thing I would mention, and I've talked about this a lot with students in the lab, so they'll often try a couple of different machine learning models. So they'll do a neural net and a decision tree and a logistic regression. And then they come to me somewhat confused because the different methods have found different variables. And I've been trying to explain to them that that, that's expected and that's almost why you're encouraged to try multiple machine learning methods. Because you will get different variables coming out as important based on the underlying features that they're modeling. I'm sure you encounter that a lot as well.
1: Oh, I agree completely and I think the right approach is to use multiple approaches, not to settle on one method because each, each statistical method, each machine learning method, looks at the data in a different way and it's hard to know before you start an analysis what the right method is to use. So it's, it's generally uh, advisable to use multiple methods and compare the results like you said. I think that's a great idea. All right, the, the next general bucket I'd like to highlight is visual interpretation. Um, and there's no substitute to understanding the, um, what your data looks like. Um, and that can really play an important role um, uh, in, in machine learning. And I'll just give a quick, simple example. Um, we were, uh, this was some years ago, but we were doing uh, an analysis of some gene expression microarray data. And my analyst was visualizing the data and noted uh, an interesting pattern in the data. Long story short, it turned out that the the company that we were outsourcing the microarray uh, analysis to um, had changed technology halfway through the experiment. And so that introduced a huge bias in the data. And unfortunately, the samples that were sent first were cases and the samples that were sent later were controls, and that introduced an enormous bias in the day, but the only way he detected that was through visualization. So that was a, a, a really, really important discovery. So I have a list here of a couple visualization things that, uh, methods that I think are important. Of course, you want to look at the distribution of the features and understand that. Scatter plots are uh, really important for looking at feature relationships, and you can then compare that to the correlation analysis that you did, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I love dendrograms. I mentioned the hierarchical cluster analysis, looking at dendrograms of relationships. You can also do that for interactions. Uh, Network analysis, looking at feature relationships, either correlation or interactions or some other measure you have of feature relationships uh, as a network can be really informative. And uh, bar plots of feature importance scores. So you can look at the distribution of all the feature importance scores and how they rank and whether there's an inflection point of some features being more important than others.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the visualization of the results as well as of the data, as you mentioned, you can't pick up batch effects in some different types of data without looking at the raw data or the slightly processed data. Um, The other thing that I would point out is especially when you get into big data, to pull out the results, and then even if you just had something like the feature importance scores with some sort of sensitivity metric, looking at giant tables of numbers next to lists of variables is not meaningful. And it's really hard to pull out whether it's interesting signals or if it's problems and errors in the data. And so I strongly encourage the folks in my group to come up with a way to visualize anything they bring to me that's in a spreadsheet. I wanna see it visually in some way to make sure that there's not some weird pattern that we wouldn't have expected.
1: Absolutely. All right, the next bucket I have is biological and clinical interpretation, and this is probably the hardest uh, part of interpretation, and I think the one that we're all struggling with, and perhaps the area where the, there's the most need of research. Uh, the first thing I have is the importance of expert knowledge uh, early in the machine learning process can, can really help with interpretation. So, for example, if you do biology or clinical-based feature selection first before you do the machine learning, it can then make the interpretation of the machine learning model and the feature importance scores a lot more informative. Uh, the second thing uh, I have listed here uh, is something that's not commonly done in machine learning, but an area that needs a lot more attention, and that's what is the role of confounders? What are the role? What's the role of covariates? Very much understudied in machine learning, and we've just started to scratch the sur- uh, scratch the surface of this. Uh, the next uh, thing is uh, is are the associations you're seeing actually causal? And using approaches like instrumental variables um, or Bayesian, uh, uh, you know, Bayesian methods to to get at the causality, uh, this is really hard to do. But if you're looking at deploying a machine learning model in a clinical setting, uh, it can be critical to to really know that what you're looking at is causal. Um, does it make sense? Um, you know, does this make sense based on your biological or clinical knowledge? Can you design an experiment or a clinical trial to validate it? And finally, do you trust it? Trust is a huge issue right now in, in delivering machine learning models to, to clinical practice.
0: I'm curious what you think about this one strategy that I've heard people mention, and I'm a bit, um, apprehensive to try it. So I'm curious to know what you think, but to your point Second point about confounders and covariates, you know, one of the challenges with including them is that most machine learning methods don't inherently have a mechanism to put in like an adjustment variable the way that a, a logistic regression would. And so people have suggested doing something like running a mixed linear model and then pulling out the residuals. Because in a mixed linear model approach, you can adjust for confounders and covariates, stratification, relatedness, all sorts of things. And then you take the residuals and then you run analyses on residuals. And I've certainly seen that done for a genome-wide association study. But I've had people say, oh, you could do that and then feed the residuals in as your new outcome in a neural network or in a decision tree or in any machine learning method. I guess, yes, that would adjust for the confounders, but by Taking your data and using a mixed linear model, I'm afraid that you're making some assumptions about the data that might be wrong. Considering that you're using a machine learning method with nonlinearity kind of strengths, so have you thought much about trying that, or have you tried it?
1: We have. We did a paper on that a few years ago, comparing machine learning results before and after doing a regression model correction. Uh, you know, outputting the residuals and using that in in the machine learning model and. And it was interesting because some of the results stayed the same before and after, and some of the results changed. So I think it helped us get a, get a handle on what the confounder was doing. But it was also a known confounder. It was a published known believe, you know confounder. And I think in that case, outputting the residuals can, uh, can make a lot of sense and is something people should try. But how to incorporate confounders and adjustment into machine learning, I think, is an area where we need a lot of research. Okay, the last bucket I want to touch on is something called interestingness. And uh, I, I came across uh, a paper, this was some years ago now, by Gang and Hamilton, 2006. And I'll have a link in the show notes on the website to this paper. But they actually, um, there's a small community of machine learning researchers that, that are interested in interestingness. And the basic idea is, how interesting is the result that you generate from a machine learning model? And they, this paper uh, breaks down a, a list of objective measures and subjective measures of interestingness, which um, I think can be really informative to think about it as, you, as you approach a, a machine learning model for interpretation. So of their list of objective measures, they have parsimony, right? You can measure the size of a model. Is it complex or is it simple? The coverage, um, <clears throat> we mentioned that earlier, to what extent um, is the model, who is the model predicting in, in the data set, um, accuracy, of course, uh, peculiarity, how, how unusual is the model, I mean after all that's why you do machine learning, right, is to, to find those unexpected peculiar things that you would miss using standard statistical approaches. Uh, diversity, are you generating a diversity of different models? So those are objective things. Uh, and then there are subjective measures. Novelty is one, right? What, what you think is novel might not be what I think is novel. Surprisingness, how surprised are you? Uh, each person might be more surprised or less surprised. Uh, how uh, does the model have utility? Can, can it, you know, is it useful for something? And is it actionable? Could you actually put it into clinical practice, for example? Um, These are very subjective things that depend a lot on the individual or the institution where where you're doing your work.
0: So in terms of using that last metric, that interestingness, which I really like, how do you incorporate that when you're reporting results of a machine learning approach in a manuscript? Do you go through some of those? Do you go through all of those?
1: So I'll give you an example. We did a we did a paper a while back where we were doing machine learning on genetic data, and instead of just rewarding the machine learning model based on the accuracy of the classifier for making a prediction, we also rewarded the model for. Um, uh, we were interested in inter- interactions between genetic factors. So we also rewarded the model for how many interactions were in the model because that was interesting to me. It might not be interesting to anybody else, but was interesting to us. And so we were explicitly telling the machine learning approach to find models that not only did a good job of predicting, but also included a lot of interactions because that's ultimately what we were trying to discover. So that's, a, that's an example where you can in- infuse interestingness into the machine learning modeling process uh, and, and thereby, I guess in some ways, you're biasing the machine learning algorithm toward those things that are interesting to you.
0: Great. Well, thank you for that discussion, Jason. It was great.
1: Okay, on to our news segment. Uh, First up, uh, we thought it was good to announce uh, we have nine new fellows of the American College of Medical Informatics that have just been named. Uh, And if you're not familiar, the ACMI is a college of elected fellows who have made significant and sustained contributions to the field of biomedical informatics. And um, I'm just going to go through the list of nine fellows to recognize them for their contributions to our discipline. The first is Jake Chen from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, we also have Trevor Cohen from the University of Washington, Mary Goldstein from Stanford University, Marshalline Harris from the University of Michigan, Albert Lai from Washington University, Zheong Liu from the National Library of Medicine, Omalala Ogunyemi from Charles Drew University of Medicine and Science, Bridget Sarusi from Sarbonne University and Annette Valenta from the University of Illinois Chicago. Uh, Congratulations to all of them. And while we're on the topic of awards, um, we uh, just found out there were um, over 100 uh, investigators named uh, as elected fellows to the National Academy of Medicine and among them there were several informaticians. I have a couple that I saw. Um, and I apologize if there are others, um, on the list that didn't, didn't make it onto my list. Uh, the first is George Damaris from here at the University of Pennsylvania. The second is Julia Adler-Milstein from the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, Deborah Estrin from Cornell and Renu, uh, Kaushal from, also from Cornell. So congratulations to them. I think it's wonderful to have informaticians elected to the National Academy of Medicine and to see that our, our esteemed colleagues are getting, uh, getting recognized by this uh, tremendous honor. Okay, we have a couple other news items we'd like to mention, and again, these are just things that have caught our eye, um, and again, not, not meant to be an exhaustive list. Uh, first, um, I saw that the hospital of the University of Geneva in Switzerland uh, is now the first European Union academic hospital to adopt IBM Watson for oncology. And uh, you know, IBM has, has caught a lot of flack for um, uh, some of its failures, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I think it's exciting to see that people are pushing forward with Watson. And I think we're going to continue to see Watson having a bigger, Im- bigger and bigger impact as, as time goes on.
0: Absolutely. Another item that we came across was the press release for the Epic Cosmos program. So Epic is the EHR vendor, and they have launched a new program called Cosmos, which is a cloud-based system of de-identified electronic health records that are being aggregated from different Epic clients around the country. Um, The goal is that by the end of this year, they expect to reach over 25 million records. Um, Penn Medicine was the second health system to adopt and sign up for Cosmos. And the goal of this program is really geared to allowing both clinical researchers and data scientists as well as quality improvement and clinical care to mine this de-identified data to identify interesting patterns, you know, patients that look like other patients, um, being able to find patterns in healthcare utilization and patterns in different treatments that work well and, and don't work well. It looks like a really exciting initiative. And we have the news about the press release in the show notes.
1: Okay, next. um, Computer science is just absolutely booming uh, across the United States, and I assume globally as well, as data science and machine learning and AI have taken off. And uh, I saw this this news item in campustechnology.com that says that Uh, computer and information science is the fastest-growing major. It's up 5.4 percent over the last year despite college enrollment being down overall. There are more than 22,000 students in the United States across four-year schools that have this major. And while we're on that same topic, um, I saw a press release from uh, Madison.com that the University of Wisconsin-Madison had just created a new school of computer, data and information science. Uh, And this new school combines the Department of Computer Science, the Department of Statistics and their information school. They're hiring faculty and computer science is now the most popular major at the University of Wisconsin. So I, I think it's really great to see universities rally around the computational and data sciences.
0: Yeah, now I know what to tell my son to get into. So the last news item that came about um, that we thought we would talk about is from PBS. And it's about a manuscript that was published um, a few months ago on ransomware attacks being linked to an increase in heart attacks. When I saw this article, I was actually kind of shocked. It's the the unintended consequence of a ransomware attack for sure. So the paper by Christoph Lehman and collaborators in health services research in earlier in 2019, they looked at data breaches over 3,000 hospitals and found that those that had breaches had slightly increased time to ECG, so the electrocardiograms being performed, which led to an increase in myocardial infarction mortality. Um, So it's, it has to do with the doctors and nurses having extra security measures in place after the ransomware attack happened. So shocking that, you know, a health system putting something in place to try to protect the data, protect the patients actually is potentially causing problems in data access by the doctors and nurses to do their job. So um, really a great read in their the paper that was published, as well as the article in PBS. Um, both are in the show notes.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the effect sizes are pretty small, but nonetheless, I think, interesting and definitely should be looked yeah. at closely. To... Not
0: something I ever would have <laughs> no, thought about.
1: No, not me either. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much uh, like to hear your questions, your ideas for topics, and your thoughts, of course, about how we can do a better job on the podcast. You can send your feedback to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook, as mentioned earlier in the podcast. And also, please subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast app and provide a review uh, so we can, we can see feedback that way. So we have received a couple individual feedback items that we thought we would mention. Uh, first, I'd uh, like to mention that at, uh, this is a, a tweet on Twitter from@ at PUSHKALA2307 said this is amazing. Love the different topics you have in each podcast, including the review of a paper of interest. Loved listening to it.
0: We also heard from our friend, Dr. Stephen Turner. His handle is at S-T-R-N-R. He asked us on Twitter how to get access to the podcast on at Overcast FM, which is an iPhone app. We have submitted the podcast to Apple and it is now live.
1: Okay, also on Twitter, we heard from at LKIZBOK that asked uh, that we post it to other podcast sources so he can play it back at a faster speed, and I think we've taken care of that now. Um, as we've mentioned, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple, um, and I personally am scared to listen to my voice played at one and a quarter or one and a half speed, so i uh, not sure I want to know what that sounds like. Um, and then lastly, on, uh, on, on Apple Podcast, we have a review from, um, it says, comments from a postdoc. And it, uh, this person says, it was great to hear two experts discussing emerging areas in biomedical informatics. I also really like their tips for time management. I can't wait for future episodes. Keep up the great work. So uh, thank you all for the feedback. And um, we would love to hear from more listeners.
0: Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. Today, our paper is Mobile Devices and Health by Ida Sim. This was published in the September 5th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, and a link to the publication will be in the show notes. I picked this paper because I thought it was a really great review and perspective thinking about kind of what technologies have emerged in the area of mobile health and how they might be used for clinical care. I hadn't really thought much about it until I saw this paper. You know, I use mobile technologies all the time. I think most of us do at this point, but really thinking about how you might merge that with healthcare, um, I thought was fascinating. So to start with, in case you're not familiar with the area, mobile health refers to the application of sensors mobile apps, social media, and location tracking technology to collect data that's pertinent to the wellness and disease, as well as the diagnosis, prevention, and management of disease for an individual. Um, It turns out, the latest statistics are, that 81% of North American adults own a smartphone, which I thought was a striking number. I knew it was high, but 81% was a lot higher than I thought. And this is a sad statistic. 40% of adults in the United States have two or more chronic health conditions. 40%. That's like really getting way too close to half. Um, so because of that um, large number of people, the other statistic that was sobering is that chronic conditions are responsible for 71% of healthcare spending. So it's costing a lot of healthcare dollars, which I think is what is facilitating this interest in mobile health because so many people have mobile devices and different mobile technologies, if there's a way to use them to either help with diagnosis or treatment, maybe it can get around and lower these healthcare costs as well as improving the health of adults, maybe even before they develop these chronic conditions. So I think the promise is extremely attractive. The challenge is gonna be in, uh, in kind of the devil in the details, which we'll talk about in a few minutes so the the first thing that she does in the review is go through the different categories of devices and some of these are probably the ones that you would automatically think of but there were some that i didn't know existed yet and was actually um surprised to hear about so the first category are called passive sensors these are the sensors that collect information without you as the individual doing anything Uh, the smartphone is the most ubiquitous it can capture information about movement Uh, different motions that you go through in the day, your position, as well as your geography. There are different types of wearables, things like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or other types of devices. I will mention that we do not have any sponsorship by any of these wearable device companies. Um, They can measure the same things as a smartphone, but in addition, they can measure things like movements associated with smoking, as well as movements that would happen in a seizure. Uh, It also can measure heart rate, heart rate variability, and even the newest ones can do electrocardiograms. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Then there are another category called sensor patches. I was not really familiar with these. These are patches that you can put on the skin or even over your clothes, and they can measure muscle activity, posture, and pulmonary edema. And this reminds me, the posture one, I think I've seen Facebook ads for some sort of device that you put on your shoulder, like in between your shoulders, to do something with your posture. I guess it's that type of sensor. Um, this one uh, was the last that totally shocked me. There are now pills that you can swallow that have sensors in them. And when the sensor hits the acidic environment of your stomach, it opens the pill such that the sensors are able to measure different uh, chemicals in this, in your system, and it's a way to measure medication adherence. So a huge problem is people not taking their medications. This is a way that you can measure whether the compounds are in their system that should be there. Um, you can take all of these uh, passive sensors and link them to the internet of things, and then through that you can do things like have smart homes that will monitor activity so that monitor your activity. This is something that they've started to do for older individuals to try to um, assess falling. So it's kind of the, that idea of those sensors or the devices you used to wear and hit the button when you've fallen, but if you fall and hit your head, you're not going to hit the button. This would monitor that someone had fallen. And then also they can measure things like air pollution and noise and traffic. So it's a lot of different passive sensors. Um, a really interesting one that I had never heard of. So this is under active sensing. It's called ecologic momentary assessments. So rather than the traditional way of giving people a questionnaire or a survey to recall exposures that they have had, things they had to eat, things they had done, how much they slept, how much exercise they had, which survey questionnaires are inherent with recall bias. So it's you know, hard for people to remember what they did. This does repeated sampling measurements of subjects based on their current behaviors and experiences in real time. So devices will either text you a prompt to go to the app, or just send a text that you will respond to one or two short questions. But it will do this repeatedly throughout the day and throughout the week. And through those repeated measurements, they can get a a repeated measure sample of your behaviors and make inferences about your actual exposures and experiences. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, There are some functional assessments that can be done now. So there are things like the six-minute walk, which can measure things about your gait and look at slowness of your gait and your walk. There are applications to look at voice tremor using a microphone on a device to look at um, evidence of Parkinson's. And then there are also apps to look at cognitive function, such as memory and reaction time. So through these apps, you can do short functional activities, and it'll be able to measure your current. And then if you do it over time, it'll measure your kind of change, either your increase or decrease in different patterns. There are digital biomarkers that um, this is a phrase I had not heard used for this. So each day you're your watch or your phone will calculate the number of steps that you've taken. But those raw data in themselves are not as useful. And so these digital biomarkers are a way that you compute on those measurements. So you can get your daily step count, your average nightly sleep duration. This is a really hot area that uh, she points out needs a lot of additional expertise. So For those listening who might be interested, they're looking for people in engineering, computer science, data science, clinician and clinical researchers. This is an area that those types of people really need to work together to figure out what are the clinical needs, what digital biomarkers are needed that they can kind of compute on, and then how do you validate them and show that they're actually useful in clinical care? So I think this is an emerging area that we'll see more. And then the last one are, digital therapeutics and diagnostics. So these are things like tracking cognitive um, behavioral therapies for patients that have things like insomnia or substance abuse or ADHD. They can, through these different um, digital therapeutics, put in reminders and behavior management programs. So telling you to take your diabetes med, telling you you know, you've been awake for too long, you need sleep, or telling you to turn off devices so that you can start to kind of get away from the blue light. Um, They also have smart inhalers that track your time and frequency and location of their use. So a lot of really neat digital technologies that that are emerging. Um, So the the last couple points I would make, I found the review to be really fascinating, pointing out a lot of emerging technologies that I wasn't aware of that I think show a lot of potential promise in the future, um, but she also points out there are definitely challenges around you know, how, how will this be regulated, how will these be validated, and how are we really going to use them for clinical care.
1: So thanks, uh, Marilyn, for picking this paper. I really learned a lot from the paper. I thought I knew a lot about mobile technology and mobile health until I read this paper, and uh, I learned a lot. And if you've ever seen Ida Sim give a talk, she gives a great talk. I would highly recommend, um, uh, you know, making an effort to, to see her if uh, she comes to your institution or speaks at a conference. Uh, one of the things I learned from reading this paper is just all the terminology. It's amazing to see the evolution of terminology in this fast moving area. The one you mentioned you know, was one that stuck out to me in the glossary of the paper. And it was nice to see they included a glossary because there is a lot of new terminology, but ecologic momentary assessment. I had never heard that phrase before, um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. And I was also happy to see um, uh, the author go through some of the challenges, which I think are extraordinary. And you could certainly write a whole paper on the challenges around uh, mobile technology and mobile health. Um, and she lists two here. Um, the first, of course, is the vast quantity of data and how you how you um, reduce that to something that is informative. And then, of course, the second one is then how do you present that to a clinician? How do you incorporate that into their workflow? Either um, all the data we're collecting on our own devices and, you know, a lot of that data is managed through a Web page. You can imagine emailing your doctor saying, hey, here's my. You know, here's my device tracker for the month. Could you take a look at it? I saw something weird. Well, you know, what clinician has time to log into a patient's webpage and review their, you know, their fitness tracker information? And then uh, also, I think even more challenging is how do you put that in the electronic health record? How do you, how do you code it, store it, and present it in a visual manner to a busy clinician so that they can get the key information in a few seconds that they need? So a lot of informatics work to. Figure out how to make use of all this data. It's going to keep us busy for a long time. Uh, really hot area. And then um, one of the other challenges that that stuck out to me here that I think is something more of a psychology, human behavior issue is um, is the high drop-off rate. Um, that you know people think it's a good idea to get a a, a smartwatch or a, a smart device, and they buy it and use it, and then and then get tired of it, get bored with it, and drop off. I have two Apple watches at home, and if you'll notice, I'm not wearing one right now. And I'm one of those people that bounces back and forth between sometimes using the technology and sometimes not. Uh, Marilyn is wearing her Apple watch, and I think you always have it on. So you're one of the you're one of the good the good uh, <laughs> the good the good patients. Um, so um, and they say here in the paper, uh, in one survey, more than half of users of activity trackers stopped using their device. And a third did so within the first six months. So how do you, as a clinician, how do you convince, even if you could use the information being captured by these things, how do you convince a patient to continue to use them? I, it's a That, that seems like a, a big, maybe a bigger issue is compliance.
0: Yeah, I think the more that they can make it passive, the easier that it's going to be. So you're right. I wear my Apple Watch every day. Again, not an ad, no sponsorship. I bought it myself. <laughs> um but i have an old apple watch now if i just log in and look at my step count like that's fine i look at it every day i'm trying to do a map my run challenge with my son which requires me to either pay the premium which i haven't done or i have to go in and enter my steps manually I can I, I don't I like for a day or two I remember and I look at the watch or look at the phone and then type them in but most of the time I don't do it. So if it's passive and it just measures my step counts, I'm good. If I have to log in somewhere and type in how many steps, it just doesn't happen. He's like beating me by you know 50 miles this month or something like that um, So the, as you said, uh, Ida gives a fantastic talk. And um, I would mention one other thing I noticed just actually today whenever I was um, pulling the article off for us to do the podcast, there's a link on the front page of either the – if you print it out, it's on the first page. And if you are just looking at on the web, it's on that first part. I mean, you barely scroll down. They did an interview with Ida about the paper as a compendium to the article. It's about a 14-minute video – I'm sorry, 14-minute interview – highly recommend you listen to it. She talks a lot about the things that are in here.
1: So for the young people out there, this is a hot area to get into. There's going to be a never-ending amount of research um, and and clinical application uh, in this area, so keep keep your eye on it. Thanks, Marilyn. This episode, and hopefully in future episodes, we are featuring an open-source software segment We have selected an awesome R package called ROMOP, R-O-M-O-P, that facilitates interfacing with data that uses the OMOP data model. Dr. Ben Glicksberg will introduce why his software is needed and will tell us what it does. Thank you for contributing to the podcast, Ben.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be talking to you for the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast hosted by Drs. Marilyn Ritchie and Jason Moore, pioneers of the field. My name is Ben Glicksberg, and until a few weeks ago, I was a postdoctoral scholar with Atul Butte at the Baker Computational Health Sciences Institute at the University of California San Francisco. Just recently, I started a faculty role at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm an assistant professor of genetics and genomic sciences and the first recruit for the newly formed Hasso Planner Institute for Digital Health. My lab focuses on many clinical and bioinformatic topics, which I think are of much relevance to the themes of this podcast. Overall, our goal is to leverage and integrate multiple modalities of health and biological data, including electronic health records and genomics, to help identify strategies to better tailor medicine to the individual. Check out our website at glicksburglab.com to learn more. And if what I'm talking about today interests you, please feel free to reach out because we're recruiting. Besides that selfish plug, I have no relevant financial conflicts of interest. The topic I want to discuss today has to do with the goal stated above. Basically, how can we analyze these various types of biomedical data to produce robust, accurate, and fair precision medicine findings? Each source and type of data can be used for powerful discoveries, but each have their own set of unique challenges, biases, and limitations, which are further confounded when utilizing more than one together. Of course, it's the goal to implement carefully considered statistical and machine learning methods to control for such issues, and for many cases, it works great. There are even FDA-approved algorithms for biomedical analysis, like IDXDR, approved last year for AI-powered automatic detection of diabetic retinopathy from retinal slides, which have passed the rigorous review process of the FDA. There are many cases, however, where results are not so robust. Biases in such work can have immediate real-world consequences. Just this week, Obermeyer et al. published a study in Science in which they identified a racial bias in how a commercial prediction algorithm computed risk for healthcare decisions. They found that this algorithm is biased in that it assigns sicker black patients the same level of risk as healthier white patients. This is very serious because this algorithm is actually used for patient enrollment in intervention programs. Their main message was that we have to be exceedingly careful of what outcomes we are assessing and to be conscientious of what biases might underlie how data are collected and recorded, such as healthcare cost utilization, as well as how they're being modeled. The good news is, is that the research group and commercial vendor are working together to address this fault, but we cannot assume all groups will do so. In addition to the lesson from this powerful work, there are other ways in which machine learning based precision medicine algorithms can fail to generalize to the population at large. In other words, how well an algorithm fits to a group outside of the data it's trained on. For instance, will an algorithm built to predict sepsis on UCSF patients work for those in Mayo Clinic, which have a very different population? There are modeling techniques like dropout that are used to reduce overfitting or making the algorithm too specific to its training set, but we cannot assume that the population of one hospital is a fair representation of the overall human phenome. Ideally, we would like to train on as much patient data as possible to make sure we have a reflection of the amazing amount of heterogeneity that encompasses humanity ranging from genetic ancestry to cultural practices. One of the biggest reasons this is difficult to do is because of data access. In a vast majority of cases, researchers can only access patient data if they work for a hospital or a school affiliated with the hospital, and only then if their research is approved by the Institutional Review Board. Furthermore, the institution has to have a data warehouse set up to even enable this. This topic of data privacy versus data access is important, but better served in a separate discussion. Even with access to EHR, things become more complicated because of compatibility issues, specifically the underlying table structure of the data, or how it's stored, as well as the language of the data, or how it's recorded which are almost certainly disparate across institutions. This is due to different software vendors and hospital specific implementations, which is not really the most interesting topic to get into for now. This makes replication experiments difficult for two reasons. First, without a common unifying way in which the data are recorded, we can't necessarily be sure that we are correctly comparing the same concepts. In a simple scenario, One EHR may record the brand name version of a medication, while the other, the generic. Second, because the structure and language of the EHR are different between institutions, every time someone wants to replicate work, they essentially have to code the entire experiment again from scratch. Not really an efficient situation. Enter common data model or CDM frameworks. The goal of CDMs are to remove the discrepancies mentioned before by standardizing how the data are coded and how they are stored. There are incredible initiatives that have created powerful CDMs such as I2B2 and FHIR and each have their own respective strengths and limitations. Now, however, I want to focus on the CDM created by the Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics, or Odyssey, consortium called the Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership, or OMOP, CDM. Essentially, OMOP is an open source standardized system that incorporates various unified vocabulary structures into an extensible relational database. This is so invaluable because A, the clinical concepts are all embedded into a robust language that encompasses hierarchical structure, and interrelationships. And B, because now code can effectively be shared and should work seamlessly across different institutions. Of course, converting institutional EHR data to OMAP is no easy task, but it's beyond the scope of this talk. Let me provide an example of why this is so powerful. Just this week, Suchart et al. published an incredible study that compared the safety and effectiveness of first-line antihypertensive drug classes. For arguably the first time, the authors were able to do a comparative effectiveness analysis for all such therapies, which have never been all assessed against each other at the same time. They found that certain safety profiles favored some classes, like thiazides, over others. Because of the common data framework, they were able to assess this question in data of millions of patients across six administrative claim databases and three EHR systems. This would be exceedingly difficult, if not even possible, using traditional approaches. As you may be able to already see, such a framework can really enable large-scale studies which in conjunction with careful hypotheses and data considerations, will absolutely enable more robust machine learning algorithms. One of the best things about the Odyssey group is the amount of high quality and, in particular, open source packages and tools they build and release for free to the community. I would highly recommend checking out their GitHub page. These packages are immensely powerful. Some can actually run all aspects of an experiment, including steps such as data prep and cleaning. Some people, myself included, might not know where or how to start interacting with OMOP data. While it's definitely an efficient and powerful system, the OMOP CDM is still complicated and involves many nuanced concept relationships. I like to think of it as having access to a professional mechanic's full, complete tool collection when all I need is to build an IKEA side table. Therefore, my advisor Atul and I decided to build some more lightweight packages to further facilitate utility of OMOP. Our first package, r-OMOP, which is not to be confused with the robotic MOP of the same name, has a very simple premise. We want to give users a straightforward way to connect, extract, and search for clinical data in their OMOP formatted EHR. Aligning with the principles of Odyssey, our OMOP, built in R as one might presume, is completely open source and available for free to everyone in GitHub for use and modification. As a quick note, this package is still evolving and will continue to be adapted along with the OMOP CDM itself. Feel free to submit a feature request in the GitHub. In one line of code, users can easily retrieve all relevant information for a list of patients including demographics, encounters, and clinical data, such as diagnoses or medications. Furthermore, users can search for patients by leveraging all the inherent ontological structure of OMOP, such as searching for patients that are prescribed a certain class of medication, like antihypertensives. Our OMOP allows for somewhat flexible search strategies of any clinical domain through and versus or operators, as well as inclusion and exclusion criteria. For more context, we published this work in GME Open as an open access article, so please check it out to learn more. Lastly, we understood that many users may not have access to OMOP formatted EHR systems, but might want to still explore the CDM and package. Therefore, using completely synthesized, aka no protected health information, patient data, released from CMS, we built a sandbox server with a step-by-step R Markdown-based interface for anyone to try. Feel free to check it out at romop.ucsf.edu. While building our OMOP, we also realized that there are many scientists and researchers that may want to leverage OMOP EHR data but do not have experience with programming or R. Therefore, we also wanted to create a visualization application that will allow for similar functionality of ro such as connection, exploration, and filtering of data, but with an interactive interface that requires no coding. As a quick caveat, many of the interactive visualization plots included in the app were not created by me, but by leveraging the work of the masters of R&D3, and everything is credited in the package. In this app, users are able to connect to their their in-house OMOP formatted EHR system and search for patients using any and all clinical concepts. Users can further refine searches through filtering and the resulting cohort is plotted with interactive capabilities. The plots and data can be easily exported for grants and papers. Any patient from this cohort can be selected for further inspection. In the subsequent tab, the user gets a convenient list of all clinical information recorded for the patient of interest. The user is also presented with an interactive timeline view of all the patient's encounters in the health system, each of which can be selected to inspect the data collected at that time. On the last tab, the clinical data itself is automatically plotted in an interactive format as well. For instance, laboratory measurements can be selected, which will produce a plot of all values collected over time. The user can even include multiple data types together in the same plot that are linked by the timeline. It's unfortunately not possible to go through the full list of features here, but we published this work as an open access article in bioinformatics, so please read it for more context. Like our OMOP, we also created a public sandbox server for users to interact with the app using synthetic patient data, which can be found at patientexplorer.ucsf.edu. Please request new features or report bugs in the completely open source GitHub repo. All in all, I really believe that these CDM initiatives, coupled with the community's awareness and continual rigor for addressing underlying biases of machine learning models, have put us on the right track. But it will require us to keep questioning any results we see it's been very fun speaking to you all for the biomedical informatics roundtable podcast and i want to sincerely thank marilyn and jason again for the opportunity please feel free to reach out to me for any reason
1: now on to our open data discussion each episode we hope to discuss a useful source of open data Today, our data selection is the UK Biobank. Marilyn is going to introduce the topic.
0: Great. I picked this open data because UK Biobank uh, just released a new swath of phenotype data. And I thought because of that, it's been mentioned quite a bit on Twitter. And so people might be hearing about it for the first time or just hearing about the new data. So I thought it would be a good one to talk about. So first, I thought I would um, just mention what the UK Biobank data set um, includes for those of you who are not familiar. So this program is obviously part of a research program in the United Kingdom, where they have recruited 500,000 individuals to participate in a biobank. These individuals are, for the most part, kind of healthy individuals from the population, though... Like anyone, they do have certain clinical conditions that you can find in their health records, which is what makes them useful for research purposes. Those data were uh, assayed by a whole genome SNP chip. So it was the UK Biobank array that has, you know, well over a half a million single nucleotide polymorphisms. And then the data have also been imputed. So the data releases you know, millions of variants. And then there are hundreds and even thousands of phenotypes that are linked with these genetic data. So the phenotypes range from electronic health record data, from hospital inpatient records, there are different surveys and questionnaires, there are some imaging data, some laboratory measurements. So it's a, it's a pretty nice rich set of data that can be used for a lot of different purposes. And it's become a staple, I think, in the field of human genetics and translational bioinformatics. So the things that I wanted to talk about with these data are really three kind of things about accessing the data and how you might um, be able to use it in your own research. So the first topic was the ease of access. And I have to say the UK Biobank team has done a really great job of building an online system. So their access management system, I found very easy to use. It's very clear. It has a series of sections that you fill out on a form. I have tried it both where I've kind of copy and pasted the form into a Word document so that I could get offline and fill it out and then just log back in and paste it in. It was very easy to use. That said, number two, I wanted to give some tips about accessing the data and writing a proposal. Um, Number one, if you are going to be moving institutions and you know that, wait to apply for access until you have made the move. The reason for this is that the data use agreement that gets signed is not between you, the individual, and the UK Biobank. It is your institution on your behalf and so I moved about two years ago and I had just gone through the process of filling out a UK Biobank application right before I decided to move I made the move and I had to do the application all over again so if you're gonna <laughs> <Good> move, <advice. laughs> wait um, the other tip about the proposal part is that you have to remember that the people reviewing it are not experts so When they say they want a lay description or a general research description, they truly mean that they don't want it to be overly complicated. And so uh, part of the delay in me getting my first proposal accepted was actually that I was being too technical and detailed in the scientific content. And what they wanted was something much simpler and clearer. So I think the most clear, simple, short, concise way that you can write your proposal, the better. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to mention about accessing the data is that I have found at least three web tools that have done GWAS, FEWAS studies. So genome-wide association studies across a phenome-wide set of phenotypes in the UK Biobank. And they have posted the association statistics publicly on the web. So I have found one that's hosted at the University of Michigan, One that's hosted, it looks like maybe in the Roslyn lab in the UK, and then one in Ben Neal's lab. And um, we'll put the links to all of these in the show notes. As I said, that's three, but I kind of think there might even be one more that I saw talk about at the American Society for Human Genetics meeting. So if you want to get a quick kind of sneak peek at a particular variant or a particular gene and some phenotypes, you could just go to one of those resources and search it even before going through the process of accessing the data yourselves. Um, the last thing I was just going to mention, as I said earlier, they just released a new swath of phenotype data. So the data that they have had available for quite a while are the hospital electronic health records. What they just released are the primary care electronic health records. And as it turns out, it's only a small subset of the patients, so the UK Biobank is working really hard to get these data on all 500,000, but as I understand it from one of the leads of the UK Biobank, they're having to go individually, kind of clinic by clinic to get this. So in the UK, while it is nationalized healthcare, primary care clinic EHRs are not all linked. And so they have to kind of go through them all one by one the other piece that makes this data just a little bit harder to integrate is that the hospital records are in ICD-9 and IC- I'm sorry ICD-10 codes primarily they have a little bit of ICD-9 the primary care data is in SNOMED codes, and so even to combine those data, you're going to need to do a mapping to some ontology or some other disease concept mapping, and so it's not like you can just grab them and use them right away. It's going to be a little bit more work, so my lab has not started using the primary care data yet, but we're keeping an eye on it to become available on everyone, and then we'll figure out how to do the mapping. I don't know. What what have your experiences been?
1: So first of all, I just want to say this is a, this is a, a fantastic resource. I'm really excited about uh, using it. And, and I just want to start by thanking the people of the United Kingdom and the UK government for making this uh, unbelievable resource available. I, I think it's been a game changer for those of us working in, in the, the genetics and genetics and EHR. Uh, space. Um, I made the decision earlier this year that I was going to move most of my genetic studies to UK Biobank data because of the sample size and the vast array of phenotypes that are available. Um, and so we started our application. I think it was early, early in the summer. I think it was June when we started applying for the data, and we just started getting access now. And and that's not because of the UK Biobank. I've actually found them to be pretty responsive, and the application. Process was a little complicated, but not not that hard. In fact, I would say the hardest part of the application was just listing all the variables that and features that you want from the from the um, from the EHR. So that's that takes a little bit of figuring out, but but they've been very responsive. And uh, the slow part has just been my institution and getting it through, getting all the approvals signed off on, and figuring all that out, and getting. Getting checks mailed to the U.K., you know, to the U.K. Biobank, and so that's that's what's taken the vast amount. I would say ninety percent of the time has been my institution. So, be prepared for that part of it. Getting you know, getting it all approved and signed off on by your institution might be the most time-consuming and frustrating part of this process. Um, Marilyn, you know, we've had um, a lot of internal conversations about. Um, um you know, sort of economies of scale in working with this data because the genotype data is quite large. it's it's a lot of data. And we have a number of investigators here at the University of Pennsylvania that are using the UK biobank. So we've had a lot of internal discussions about how to centralize this. And I know Marilyn, you've been taking a lead role on that. Do you want to say a few words uh, about our efforts?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so what we've decided to do is to put in a request with the UK Biobank, which they've approved to have an institutional copy of the genetic data. And then with that, we give read-only access to those data to any investigators with uh, approved proposals through the UK Biobank. And so we've chosen a central storage location that everyone has access to. And then as they get their proposals approved, um, we give them access to that directory. They get added to that group. And so all that that required was kind of the ask of UK Biobank. And then when people at Penn now make their proposal request, rather than saying they want to download new genetic data, there's an option in the form to say, I'd like to use an institutional copy of the data. And then there's a drop-down menu that you can choose that proposal that goes with that. And I think that it's gonna be a, a game changer in terms of storage costs for using a data set that size.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. It'll certainly certainly save money. I think it'll save a lot of time and hassle on the part of the investigators to set up their own infrastructure for managing this big data. And then and then just to be clear, uh, you know, as an investigator, if you ha- if you have this kind of arrangement, all you have to do is download the phenotype data that you've requested, and then you're ready to merge it and and work with it institutionally. So um, yeah, great great resource. Hi. My name is Jonathan Haynes. I am professor and director of the Cleveland Institute for Computational Biology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our Biomedical Informatics Conference update. Marilyn?
0: We introduced the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing, Also known as PSB, in the last episode, we would like to mention that you still have an opportunity to submit an abstract for a poster presentation. The deadline is November 15th. The poster sessions are always very dynamic and fun. And even if you don't have time to get a poster in, the conference registration is open uh, until kind of right up until the meeting. So January 3rd to the 7th on the Big Island of Hawaii, definitely a great place to be during the winter.
1: Don't wait too long because uh, I think they do have a maximum uh, attendance, uh, so they might cut off registration at some point, so don't don't wait too long. Okay, we also last time introduced the American Medical Informatics Association AMIA annual meeting, uh, and this is just a reminder that the AMIA 2019 annual symposium will be held at the Washington Hilton in Washington, D.C. on November 16th through 20th, so this is coming up very, very soon. We'll all be, uh, all the informaticians here at Penn will be departing soon, headed down to Washington, D.C. Uh, Marilyn and I will both be there, and we hope you will stop by our University of Pennsylvania booth and try out our new Penn AI software for automated machine learning. So we'll uh, hope to see you there. Please, uh, please stop by and say hello. Uh, I also want to mention I'm organizing and chairing a, a, a new biomedical informatics work, workshop at the 13th International Joint Conference of Biomeg- Biomedical Engineering Systems and Technology called Biostec, it will be held in Malta on February 24th through 26th uh, in 2020. The workshop I'm chairing is called Comp to Clinic, Closing the Gap Between Translational Research and Healthcare Practice uh, will have a focus on AI and machine learning. Uh, I am organizing this with several co-organizers, including Carly Bobach, Merrick Svoboda, and Dr. Christine Patton, all from Dartmouth College. Paper submissions for the workshop are due on December 19th of this year, and uh, there's a link to the workshop in the show notes. And I also want to mention another uh, new symposium. I am working closely with Dr. Zach Kohani from Harvard, Suchi Saria from Johns Hopkins, Nick Tetnetti from Columbia, and Jesse Tenenbaum from Duke to plan and host the first symposium on artificial intelligence for learning health systems, or SAIL, S-A-I-L. And this will be held April 27th through 29th in 2020 in Bermuda. SAIL is a new annual international conference exploring the integration of AI techniques into clinical medicine. SAIL will provide a forum for clinicians, clinical informaticians, and AI researchers to come together and discuss approaches and challenges to using these approaches in the healthcare domain. The abstract submission deadline is December 20th. And we have a very distinguished group of invited speakers and panelists. Uh, I am really looking forward to this. And uh, I think uh, AI is such a hot topic. And um, we, we, there's such a huge opportunity to bring clinicians and AI researchers together.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one, too. The last one we wanted to mention, we introduced in the last episode the AMIA Informatics Summit, Just a reminder that the summit will take place March 23rd to the 26th in Houston, Texas. Registration opens for the meeting on November 12th, so very soon. And the decisions about the abstracts and posters and panel submissions will be released momentarily any day now.
1: It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is imposter syndrome.
0: Oh, imposter syndrome. That is one that we are probably all far too familiar with. So imposter syndrome, I'm giving the definition that from an article in the Harvard Business Review, I'll have this in the show notes, or sorry, Harvard Business Journal. Imposter syndrome can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evident success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. They seem unable to internalize their accomplishments, however successful they are in their field. High-achieving, highly successful people often suffer, so imposter syndrome doesn't equate with low self-esteem or a lack of self-confidence. In fact, some researchers have linked it with perfectionism, especially in women and among academics. I am both a woman and an academic, so I can honestly say that imposter syndrome is real. It is something that I encounter, sadly, far too often. I wish that I didn't, and its I felt so much better when I read this, that it's not a lack of self-confidence or low self-esteem, neither of which I have, but imposter syndrome creeps up frequently. So the basic idea is that you sit there and think that they're going to find out that I don't know it all. They're they're not, they're not going to believe me anymore. I feel like a fake. It, my success so far has just been luck or success is no big deal. Or you think, well, I can't fail at this. Everybody expects me to succeed, so now I have to succeed. And so you get on this worry wheel of thinking that you're not going to be able to achieve something because you'll look like a failure, and then they'll know your secret, that you don't know everything and can't do everything. So I think that this is something that um, I have to remind myself is just in your head that it, while the concept is a real thing, it is not grounded in truth. I find myself uh, talking to my trainees and former trainees about this frequently. I'll have students that graduated 10 years ago and they'll say, like, I'm so worried they're going to find out that I don't know everything. And all I can do is like smile and laugh. And I'm like, oh, but you don't know everything. And neither do I. And neither does anyone. (laughs) None of us know everything. That's the point of life is to be a lifelong learner. And so I think it's, it's a reality that We all go into that mode, especially when we see someone else being really successful and achieving something. They got, you know, a a really big grant or a series of awesome papers come out. At least for me, that's when I will catch my head going into, see, like, they know what they're doing. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. Soon they're all going to find out that I'm just a phony and a fake. And... It's something that it it creeps up at the worst times for me. I don't know. Jason, how about you?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this because it is incredibly common. And that's the other thing about imposter syndrome is I think everybody that feels it feels like they're the only ones, right? That's right. That that everybody else has got their their act together and that you're the only one that feels this way. And I I would say it's quite the opposite. I think everybody feels this. And um, the first time I really felt it was in graduate school. I remember you know uh, probably one of the first days of graduate school being surrounded by my classmates that were all coming from ivy league institutions and you know all of a sudden i felt like oh my god do i belong here am i good enough to be in graduate school with these people you know mm-hmm. and of course the answer was yes and i did great and and have gone on to a lot of success and absolutely 100% belong there and um so I think it's, and I've certainly felt that throughout my career, and it often comes when you take on a new leadership position, right? Your your first thought is, oh my God, you know, they've put a lot of confidence in me to do this job, and am I really going to be able to do this? Do I have what it takes to be a good leader and, um, you know, to accomplish whatever your, whatever your goal is? So um, I've felt the same way numerous times throughout my life, and every time it's been fine, and you know, I think you what you said is the key, right? Is that we're in academics, we and and other things, but we're we're in a lifetime learning process, and I think that's the important thing to remember. Is every time you take a step up, take a leadership position, take an administrative position, you have new responsibilities, new things to do that you don't know how to do. It's going to be stressful. You're going to feel like an imposter. But you have to give your, you know, believe in yourself that you can learn how to do the job, and it really is on-the-job training that we're all doing. We're learning as we go, and I like to often say we're making it up as we go, right? I mean, that's kind of the role of a scientist mm-hmm. is to make it up as you go along, because if you had all the answers, you wouldn't be a scientist, right? That's right. So the same's true for leadership, um, and so so think about think think about what it was like to be a freshman in high school right? It was stressful. It was new. It was uncomfortable. Um, you didn't feel like you belong there. It's that same feeling, right? That mm-hmm. comes back later in life. And, and, and when you're a freshman in college, it's the same thing. Everything's new, but you figure it out. You learn. And by the time you're a senior, you're a pro, right? right. So keep that in mind. Think, think about when you start a new leadership position. It's like starting that first day of high school, that first day of college, and, and, and believe in yourself that you will learn how to do the job and that all of us, everybody around you who looks like they have their act together is also either learning on the job or has learned on the job how to do it.
0: No, that's exactly right. It's funny you mentioned the graduate school and being surrounded by all these people who trained in the Ivy Leagues. I had that same feeling when I started at the University of Pennsylvania almost two years ago. So I did not go to an Ivy League school for undergrad or graduate school. I showed up here as a full professor, and the students that come into my office are brilliant. And the first couple of months, I actually caught myself thinking, what am I doing here? How am I gonna mentor <laughs> these Ivy League students when I'm not an Ivy League student? And and it's true that I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but I am now, you know, 20 years almost post-graduate school. I am an Ivy League professor. I may not be an Ivy League student, but I am an Ivy League professor. But it definitely took that mental shift for me to think about that. So a couple of tips in this article that I linked to that I think are helpful when you're in that phase of imposter syndrome. um, One is being aware that it's happening. So awareness that this is just in your head and this is not actual reality that other people are thinking is important. Um, You need to take it upon yourself to rewrite that inner dialogue. You have to start telling yourself you're not supposed to know everything. This is fine. I have done things like this before. I can do hard things. Um, You need to try to pay attention to when it happens and where it happens to try to prepare yourself to maybe avoid it the next time. So I know, for example, that every time I get a summary statement on a grant, I go there. And so I have to, before I even open it up, Kind of prepare myself that I am successful. These are three people who made comments about a piece of work that I wrote. That's all. It's three people. It is not the world telling me that I can't do (laughs) science. Um, And I think talking to other people about it. So part of the reason we're talking about this, that as you talk to other people, you realize that we all go through this and that it's not actually true failures that cause imposter syndrome. In fact, I would also say failures are really just other opportunities to learn and you shouldn't view them as a bad thing. But it's not even failures that cause it. Sometimes it's successes. You get awarded. You get a new job. You get a new position. And that creates it. So I think just being aware of when it's happening to you. And and the last thing I would say is just be kind to yourself with your inner dialogue. You shouldn't be saying things to yourself that you would not say to another person. So when you are experiencing that, like give yourself some grace and Be kind. It's not bad that you're experiencing it, but you have to talk yourself out of it.
1: Okay, uh, it's time for our closing remarks. Um, I will start. Um, We went over uh, our discussion topic on interpreting machine learning models and listed um, a lot of different things. And I I just want to make the point that I think if you're a a machine learning practitioner, you certainly don't need to do everything we talked about, um, and we certainly probably barely scratched the surface on interpreting machine learning models, but I think coming up with a good strategy, both the statistical interpretation, the biological interpretation, thinking about interestingness, coming up with something that works for you and helps you really figure out whether a machine learning model is is uh, interesting, useful, important, accurate, um, all of those things, um, uh, would be good. I think um, generally in the scientific publications I see, the interpretation is usually not very well thought out. And so I think we as a community have a lot of, a lot of work to do in this space. Um, and for those of you interested in working on machine learning methodology, uh, I think it's a wide open frontier and would make a really good dissertation topic for, for how to do that. Marilyn, do you have any closing remarks?
0: Yeah, I wanted to go back to the Journal Club for just a moment. We talked about the paper Mobile Devices and Health by Ida Sims, and I realized that one specific point that we did not talk about that she addresses in the paper that I think it's important to mention are the ethics and security concerns, kind of the the LC, ethical, legal, and social issues around mobile health in clinical care there's not only the idea of kind of that large amount of data being shared you know, publicly or shared with your healthcare provider organization and what risks and security concerns might go along with that, but also the ethics and thinking about the digital divide. So yes, 81% of North Americans have a smartphone, but how many are really adept at using it and it's not even just using it but if you wanted to download the data or transfer the data or even look at the data you know there are only certain people who are technologically savvy enough and so there's a whole other set of research and thought that needs to be put into the the ethics and the security concerns around this type of data
1: yeah absolutely Okay, we would uh, like to remind everybody to subscribe uh, through your favorite podcast app. And please, please, please provide a review uh, of the podcast. This helps not only give us feedback, but helps uh, promote the podcast and make it more visible for others. So they can, people interested in informatics, biomedical informatics can find the podcast when they're doing searches on on their podcast app.
0: And while, of course, it's great to hear that you like the podcast, and and certainly don't be shy from posting those because that you know is encouragement to us that this is useful and that we should keep doing it.
1: And somebody's listening. <laughs> and somebody's listening. <laughs> that's right.
0: Um, but also, if you can post what topics would be of interest to you, so via the mechanisms that Jason mentioned, and also on our Twitter or Facebook, if there are papers you really would like to get our take on. If there are topics you want us to discuss either scientifically or in the training space, please send that to us. We're, we're very open to suggestions and, and we're doing this for the community. You know, we want to give information to you. So if you tell us what you want to hear, you know, that's what we'll provide to you.
1: And finally, I would like to thank our talented sound engineer, Michael Stoffer, for his expert assistance. This is really a mom-and-pop operation here. There's just three of us uh, producing this podcast. So thank you for all your hard work, Michael, and thank you all for listening. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online at bmipodcast.org. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.